For the next few minutes, I want to talk with you about this subject, which is be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And um, we're going to read read up to the passage and then read this passage together with you and, and consider just a few simple thoughts on this. We're not going to be using any anything, any scriptures that you probably I haven't already heard before for the most part. At least many of you will, won't have heard them before. And this passage, is, as I was growing up, was often used to talk about people marrying someone who isn't a Christian. That if you're a Christian, you shouldn't marry someone who's not a Christian and be, therefore you'd be unequally yoked together with them. And, and that's perhaps an application. I'm not really going to go down that road this morning. That isn't what I have in mind. Because for, in truth, I think that the passage is much broader than that, probably includes that in some cases, not in every case, but in some cases it probably includes that warning. But I do think that it's a broader warning that God was giving these Corinthians who were had come out of a worldly situation and, and then were being tempted to go back into the, uh, with their neighbors into a more worldly kind of situation in the city of Corinth. And that's why Paul said what he did about being unequally yoked together. And we find ourselves in a similar situation today. The city of Corinth and this Corinthian letters, both of them were written to this church in this city, was at least the Las Vegas of its time. It would, you know, what stays and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, which is supposed to carry the idea with it subconsciously. You're going to get to do a lot of things here that you really shouldn't do and don't want to tell anybody about, but if you do those things here, nobody will ever know. You know, that kind of a, of a wicked theme. That, that's a wicked, that's kind of a subtle wickedness. The whole theme is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas applies something I think that, not that it's wrong to go to Vegas, but that Christians should have no fellowship with that kind of thinking. That there are places I can go in this country, this world, that I can do whatever I want, nobody will find out, and that's okay then. Uh, that That is certainly not anything I would ever read about in the Bible, that attitude. But that's what Corinth was. It was the center of uh, a lot of pagan fertility cult worship. And there were a couple of different temples there to a couple of these fertility goddesses, which were worshipped by all manner of sexual behavior, heterosexual, homosexual behavior. You went there, you paid the priest or the priestess, and you had sex with them, various sex acts, and that was considered worship of this god and goddess. So they were using it as a means of worship in these temples. And there were some reports historically say that there were a thousand priestesses in this temple at Corinth. That, that were there and they were at temple prostitutes as we would call them. That's what the Christians called them later. And that these Christians in the church of Corinth had once been partakers in all of this and lived in that kind of a culture where, where paganism and the worst side of paganism was prevalent in the city. And they were now after having become Christians trying to escape this, they were often tempted to go back into this kind of, of lifestyle. And so that's what the book is about. But let's get a little bit of a different running start on. Let's go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 first, if you will, with me, uh, and take a look at this uh, passage. By the way, before we do this, I didn't even say it there. I had the picture up. Maybe I should have looked at it. A yoke is something many of us in our modern culture are not familiar with. Maybe I should go back. A yoke is something that most of us in our modern culture are, are not familiar with. Uh, and that is that it, it links two animals together 
to pull the same load. And so it's something put, you can put it on, a single yoke is on a single animal, you put that on the animal to pull with. And most plowing, anybody that had a lot of not to plow was done with a double yoke or a team of animals. Remember how proud my grandfather was in his later years. He told me about this pair of white oxen that he had he could plow with. It was He was really happy about those and, and how well-matched they were in his view. They were a well-matched pair of oxen. He, I don't know what they cost him, but he wasn't a rich man, and he was very proud of having owned them for a time. I have a receipt uh, that we found, if I'm going to tell the story right, in my mother's things that he had from the 1930s. It was a receipt for, was it $100, Judy? That's a lot of money at the Depression that he had paid for a mule to plow with. For a mule that had been lost in a fire. And he got a receipt for this for some reason. It's written in his things. So they plowed with these animals back in my grandfather's lifetime. And you put two animals that are matched together to plow well with together with and and to pull carts and heavy loads. They didn't like to mix them because as I've read that when you mix one of the bovine, the oxen or uh, some animal like that with the equine, the horse animals like these donkeys here, that the donkey and the horse pull suddenly. They don't have a slow gear. They have a fast gear. So they pull suddenly, whereas the oxen can pull slowly and steadily to start the load, start the row, or whatever it may be. And when you mix the two together, it doesn't work well. That's at least the practical side of being unequally yoked. You have two different animals with two different ways of doing things, two different thought processes in mind, and they're not going to be able to function well together. And that's the application of this verse, uh, perhaps, to marriage. But, but let's go back and, and read here in First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, get a little bit of a head start on this passage. Paul says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So, the underlying premise here is that the world, that is, the mass of humanity that are not Christians, are alienated from God. They may think that they're linked to God, but they need to be reconciled to God. Reconciled means two people have a great difference and has to be bring about some kind of a common thought process or common agreement. And the world has not made an agreement with God. They do not think like God. They do not agree with God. But God would like to reconcile them to himself. And he's committed to the apostles his word of reconciliation. The gospel is God's word of reconciliation. It's God's offer to be reconciled to humanity and to the individuals in humanity on, on the terms that God can accept. You be reconciled. And so he goes on to say, now then we, as a, that is mean apostles, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. So we're preaching the word of reconciliation that God's given us. So when you read the New Testament, and really when you read the Old, you're seeing the beginnings of this, you're reading God's plea for men to be reconciled to him, all men of every nation. And we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Come back to God and be right with him. Now the world's message is, I'm okay and you're okay, we're all good to go. And as long as you are happy with yourself and authenticated and you feel good about yourself, then you're fine. That's not the gospel message at all. 
The gospel message for the world that we live in, including the high and powerful, mighty people of our world, is be reconciled to God because they're separated from God by their sin. And they don't even recognize that they have sin. And this is the whole message of the New Testament. The, the message that we believe and preach as Christians is so foreign to the modern elites of our world that there almost could be no two more opposite type th- things in the way people think about it. The idea of sin to the people, to the higher ups in our society is, is an abhorrent, unheard of kind of thought. It's a backward kind of archaic thought that there could be such a concept as sin. And yet to the Christian, this is the whole reason that we are making our appeal to God for a clear conscience because we recognize sin. And that's why he says a little bit later on then in, in chapter six to these same people, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You can't be hooked up with these people and bind yourself to them with a yoke and with an agreement. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? The word fellowship means something in common. It's communion. It's the same word for communion. The Greek word here for fellowship is the same word that you get communion from. In fact, it's translated sometimes communion and sometimes fellowship. And you don't have any fellowship, partnership. The word there often means a sharing in. When it's, it will say that, uh, Peter and Andrew were partners in fishing. They both had a share in a business, and they did the same thing together. That's the idea of fellowship in the way the Greek word is used. Same same Greek word. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? The people around you, maybe even your own family members, maybe even you yourself at one time, did not recognize the law of God, that there were principles that they should adhere to that were right and wrong. They have no basis for that. They reject the idea of God's law, what fellowship can you have with them then in reality? What communion has light with darkness? Light and darkness don't exist in the same place at the same time. One drives out the other. What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is another name for the devil. What accord has he? How can he be joined together and, and agree with something that is based upon the lies of Satan, that man is the end all and be all, that man can be a God? This is the message of Satan from the very beginning. That man is the God and control his own destiny. There's no accord that Christ can have with that. Christ is the Lord. When you become a Christian, you take, you, you take an oath. We talked about in Bible class this morning. You, you understand that God hath made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's the Lord and Belial, Satan has no power over you anymore. You're denying that he does. You're rejecting that power. When the world is saying this is the power we want, the power to do what we want to do. If you can dream it, you can do it. You know, that kind of thing. Sorry, Disney. But what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What part are sharing together? And so you you don't. Now, that doesn't mean that you hate. There's no mention of hatred here or treating people poorly. But he's trying to get across a basic concept, which I want to get across to you this morning. And really, this is in line with Many other things we've been talking about for several months. I'm kind of on a, an unstated objective here to get across something to you uh, for a while here that I think is so essential in the times we live in. We are not at peace with the world as Christians. We are at war with the world. They, more likely to put it, they are at war with us. They have made it very clear our society has and the powerful people in our society from educational to entertainment to every other government, every other one. They are at war with New Testament Christianity and those who are Christians. They think that you are dangerous people, that you are ignorant, demented people. They've said so. 
and they intend to stamp it out. They want all religions to be that United Methodist kind of religion. United Church of Christ kind of religion. Everybody just kind of does believes whatever they want to believe. And they will brook no other kind of religion if you even want to be a Christian at all. They are at war with the New Testament church and those who are his followers. And we need to understand that. We need to realize where we are. Doesn't mean we should be filled full of anger and hatred. I'm not talking about that. The world can't separate. That's what they accuse you of. As soon as you disagree, oh, you're full of hate and you're angry and all. Okay. Well, yes, I can get angry sometimes, but that's not the point. The disagreement is more fundamental than whether I'm upset or not. This, no, this is, this is going to be my sermon next week, but I won't be here. But, uh, you know, the feminization of our entire culture. We think the problem with our culture is that we're angry. You know, women tend to think the problem is that people are upset. No, the people disagree. It's not that we're upset with each other. It's that we have a fundamental disagreement in our society about the truth of certain matters. Some people say there's not even such a thing, such a thing as truth. Well, that I fundamentally disagree with that. It isn't that I'm angry about it. I may be angry about it, but that's beside the point. The issue is the issue itself. The disagreement the lack of concord and fellowship and so forth. It's not whether people are upset about it or how mean they talk about it. Just because you can talk nicely about evil things doesn't mean you're a good person. A lot of people talk nicely about evil things and and, and let people walk, walk right on in to the gates of hell because they've been so nice about it. We're missing the point. When we think it's all about whether we disagree or not or whether people have bad, have a poor attitude. Attitude's important. But truth trumps attitude. Of course, the truth is, in New Testament teaching, my attitude is something to do with the truth. I mean, if I have a poor attitude, I guess, I guess I'm not living by the truth. But the point is here. He's not talking about whether we feel bad about these things. He's talking about what's true about your relationship to the world. And I want to get this across to you if I possibly can. So that when you read the news and when you interact with people and when things come up in your life that are issues, you'll have at least understanding that this is not a game anymore. This isn't about uh, Christians are not in a majority position, in a position of power in our culture any longer. That might have used to have been years ago. Certainly isn't anymore. And I'm using that word Christian broadly, much less you poor souls that believe in the resurrection of Christ as Christians. You're so on the outside, so far down the food chain that you don't count. And you, re- you have to realize you're being opposed. Your children are being subverted. Your grandchildren are being swept away. And that's what they intend to do. Have we not seen that in the last year? That they intend and have stated plainly that they intend to corrupt your children and your grandchildren, those around you? If alarm bells aren't going off, they ought to be. That's my point in this sermon. you got to realize who we're dealing with here. Without being full of bitterness and hostility and calling people names, saying hateful things in the true sense of the word hateful. I know that in the modern use of the word hateful, it means you disagree with me or don't like what I say. That's not hate. But that's I'm using it in the true sense. So he he says... What agreement has a temple of God with idols? Verse 16. For you are a temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. God has put his stamp upon you as Christians. 
upon the true church of Jesus Christ. You're his people. He's going to walk and dwell among you. What accord can that temple have with one whose name says Apollo on the side of it? All these ancient temples had engravings on the side of them. Even the temple in Jerusalem had engravings. Holiness to the Lord. Holiness to Jehovah was upon the head of the priests and everywhere they went, things like that. And in this case, he says, God has made his mark upon you. You're his temple. You're his building. If you're his son, if you've named the name of Christ and you need to understand that. So he says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate. He's quoting the Old Testament. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And I did a sermon a few weeks ago. I'm not sure how long. A few weeks, a month ago, on the Boniface option, or something like that. On how how do we react to the world? You know, there's one option. The the uh, the, the Benedict option is just put forth in society today. The Benedict option is the mode of getting along with everybody and just kind of. Uh, just kind of being nice and just retreating. Just keep a nice face out there and then just retreat. So Christians should retreat is the idea. They should have their own schools, which is okay, but they should have their own lives. They should build their own communities, little cities around the United States where the Christians can live. Other people don't really want to live there. They should just retreat away like the monks did early on in the monastic period. Go away by themselves. Christians should just go away. Is that what he's saying here? Come out from among them and be a separate? Well, that was a practical application of that verse, I must admit. But the other option is the Boniface option. That's the man who went around breaking down idols, took it, taking his axe to all these idols and cutting them all down. God seems to sanction both of those options. So maybe we should cut down some idols, but we also have to realize that in the end, we have to be separate from them. And I think the separation occurs in the heart and the minds and the actions that we take as Christians. We have to be separate. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. There were penalties in the Old Testament just for touching a dead body that was considered unclean. Not that it made you a sinner, but disobeying that did. And so when you became unclean, you had to go through a process of being cleansed. He was trying to show them that there are things that you can do and actions you can take and words you can say that make you unclean to the Lord. And we need to stay away from those things as Christians. Have no fellowship with them. And so he says, you come out from among them and be separate. There, there are several mentions of this, this idea to get out from among them in the Old Testament. There, these are not clearly, maybe not, you may not think these are as clear as they ought to be, but we'll talk about them anyway. Where God is, from the beginning, God tried to separate his people from the world. You see, in the beginning, you had Adam and Eve, and they had a son, had a couple of sons, Cain and Abel. And then the Bible presents these young men, I don't know how old, well, I should say young, I don't know how old they were, Cain and Abel, offering sacrifices to God. <clears throat> so Cain offers his sacrifice, which God rejects, because it isn't according to faith, according to Hebrews 11. And God, he, he knew it was against what God said. God rejected it, had no favor. Abel offers his sacrifice, and God accepts his, because it was by faith, it was according to what God had said. We're not giving a lot of detail about that, except God's very clear with Cain. If you do well, you're depressed now, you're angry because I rejected your sacrifice. If you do well, will not you be lifted up? You can do right. You know how to do, you know what I've said, you know how to do what's right, but you don't want to. And so Cain didn't want to do that, so he killed his brother. 
The wicked have always tried to snuff out the righteous. And they do that, the Bible says, because their deeds are evil. They, they hate the light because their deeds are evil. They want to shut you up and marginalize you, kick you out of polite society because you don't approve of their deeds. We've all probably faced this at some time or another in some public gathering where we, we don't take alcoholic beverages when offered and we've been pushed or ostracized, made to feel bad about that. Or, uh, I remember one time I was on a trip with some, some fellows in hobby and the, one of them wanted to go over to the strip club across from the motel and got put out with me because I wouldn't go with him over to the strip club. He's a married man too. I said, you shouldn't be doing that. I'm not going to do that. You shouldn't be doing that. I knew his wife. I said, what, what's, what's Peggy done thing? Well, he didn't care because he wanted to go to the strip club. Got upset with me about it. We all, nobody knows what I'm talking about. That kind of thing goes on. That kind of stuff goes on all the time in the world. You have to make a choice. So you have to, you have to see that they don't, from the time of Cain and Abel, they, God has wanted his people to do what he says and be separate. But the wicked have always pushed it. And so there can't be two groups of people. Those who followed the ways of Cain and did what they wanted to do. And then Seth was born, a young, a younger son of Adam and Eve. And he, it says, then began, men began to again follow the way of the Lord. They began to follow Jehovah. And so here were these descendants of Seth who began to follow and do what was right. And these two people were at odds with each other. This is what the flood's about. Noah is an example of that then. There are two groups of people. The wicked followers of Cain and a few followers of Seth, like Noah. And it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he called the people to come and be reconciled to God. Come and be saved. Come and repent. Come onto the ark. And they wouldn't do it. And God destroyed the wicked. Saved this man. And he told Noah, you separate yourself from these people in the end. Get yourself on that ark and be saved. And when, when God called Noah onto the ark, he went. Even though he left all of his neighbors behind. As difficult as that might be. And then and there's Abraham. God very clearly says to Abraham, get out of your country, away from your family, away from all your relatives who worship all these idols in Babylon and come to a land I'm going to show you. And you see in Genesis the unfolding of this story of the, of the seed of Abraham as the faithful servant of God because he was separating Abraham from the rest of society which worshiped false gods. And you see that come out and be separate. And Abraham listened to what God said and God blessed him for it. And then you see Israel and Egypt. They were down in Egypt and they were slaves, but they were with the Egyptians. But he said, come out. I want you. You're mine. And he took them out of Egypt with his hand, brought them out and put them in another land on their own. And from that point on, it was really emphasized in the Old Testament that Israel had to be separate from the nations round about them. One of the, the passages we talk about where this, we'll see in just a moment about this, of not plowing with the, about the donkey and the cow I had there on the alt, on the yoke together. That's a law in the Old Testament that they were not permitted to plow with an ox and an ass on the same yoke. They weren't permitted to sow two kinds of crops in the same field. They weren't permitted to wear two kinds of clothing. So if I have on wool pants, i got to have on a wool coat. I can't have on cotton and linen or cotton and wool. I have to wear the same kind of clothing, whatever day it is. I have to plant the same crops in each field. What was the lesson there? There was some... Physical, medical reason why? No, it wasn't medical or physical or botanical. Although it may teach them to rotate crops. It really wasn't that. It was to teach them that you are one. You and Israel are one. You can't go mixing with the nations round about you. 
You're my servants. You've got to act like my servants. You've got to behave like my servants. You've got to think like people that are following me, not like your neighbors. That's always the tendency to do is to follow along with the flow. I don't say this just to be mean or critical, but I'm going to tell you from my experience as an old man, most people that you meet have not thought through why they do what they do morally at all. They're, they, don't, they haven't thought through what they're wearing or why they're doing it, why they're getting tattoos or why they're not getting tattoos, what they're piercing. Why they're, they only do it because the people around them are doing it. There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of evidence. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think since the year 2000 that suddenly four times as many babies have been born, born transgender than were being born before that? You think all of a sudden something happened genetically in the water in America? And only in certain cities of America, by the way. It doesn't happen in Indiana. It happens in California that all these babies are born transgender. And all the teenagers want to become transgender in San Francisco, but not in Birmingham. You think this is a medical reason? That's what they'd like you to believe. This is peer pressure. This is following along what your peers are doing. And I feel sorry for the people involved in that. But that's human nature. To follow the people around us. He told Israel, you cannot follow these nations around you in the way they plant their crops and what they plant and the gods they sacrifice to when they plant them. You can't do what they do. You've got to follow me and serve only me. I will not accept worship of Baal and me together. you got to... I've told you a story before about my friend from Japan played baseball in Japan years ago. He was a big star over there in the 70s. They had to sit him on the bench because he was about to break Sahara Aro's home run record. Hits record, had to sit him on the bench for a while until he, so he couldn't break the record. His wife is a big, tall, redheaded, beautiful American woman, and they call her the wife. That was her name because she was a celebrity in Japan because she was, all the Japanese men just loved her because she was tall with red hair, and they never seen anything like that in their life. So he comes back, he's over there, he's telling me, when he comes back, we're eating dinner, and he's telling me uh, about eating with, and this man's a New Testament Christian, he comes back and they're eating with some important people over there, and get introduced to this big owner of another baseball team or something, and he finds out he's kind of religious and, oh, well, let me show you. So he takes him over to this wall. He says, what God do you worship? Well, I worship Jesus Christ. He says, oh, he says, do you have an image? Do you have anything to give me? He wants an image of this Jesus Christ. And he shows him this wall. He has all of these images of all of these different gods of people that he's met. And he wants to put Jim's idol up there on the wall with his other images. He wasn't being disrespectful. He was honoring his guest to worship. He said, I'll worship him too. I want to worship your God. And he puts put him up on the wall. Jim tried to explain, my God has no image, and I can't give you one. And I don't know if he got to the point of explaining, and you can't worship those gods and my God at the same time. That's the big issue, you see. You cannot worship the gods of the New York Times and the true God at the same time. You can't worship the gods of Hollywood and all the gods and goddesses that live there you can't worship those gods and worship the God of heaven at the same time. You better make a distinction. And you need to think about that. It's not easy to do. Now then, in Exodus he says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the bond burdens of the Egyptians. I'll rescue you from their bondage. I'll redeem you with outstretched arm. and I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you'll know I'm the one. So this is what God says to the Jews, and He He brings us over to a, excuse me, to us as Christians. Now then, you see, not only you see these three examples, but 
what you see is that he separated even in the land Israel from the other nations round about them. And here's this quotation from 1 Kings chapter 8 that we referenced before. For as you separated from them among... This is, this is Solomon dedicating the temple. Solomon is laying his long, beautiful prayer, deserves many sermons when he dedicated the temple to God in 1 Kings. He says, For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance. And he separated them out. They were his only. And that's the whole point of the New Testament, being called to serve Jesus Christ, called by the gospel. In fact, we see this as the real meaning of this whole thing when you look at it, is that the the word church means called out assembly. That's the literal meaning in Greek is something that's a group that's called out. It's an assembly of people that's been taken from one place or called together for a reason. On the third Friday of every month, I think it is, the uh, Palm Beach County Beekeepers Association meets. No, it's, 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 the worst one is the Treasure Coast Beekeepers Association meets on the third Wednesday of the month, which means I can never go to the meetings. Okay. Thanks to you all. I can never go to the meetings. But when you go, if you go to that meeting, you have these church services and stuff there. Then. If you go to that meeting, you're called out. Announcement is made. If you're a member, if you're a member of that beekeeper association, the announcement that calls you to that assembly and you're separated out. Oh, I'm a member of the Treasure Coast Beekeepers Association. And not only that, but I go to their assembly, the group. This is the same idea of called out. You're separated from all the people in the world that exist. God puts his voice out there, the voice of the gospel. You've heard that voice. You've believed that voice and you've become a Christian and you've been called away from all that into this assembly, into a group of people that belongs together. And so you're separated from the world by the forgiveness that Jesus offers in Christ. You accepted that call because you knew you needed forgiveness and reconciliation with God. You understood that. Maybe your neighbors, maybe your spouse didn't know it, but you knew that you needed forgiveness, and so you accepted that call to be a Christian. And this is what it means to be separated into God. And you're also now separated through your own choices that you make continually. To live according to the will of God. That's the point that Paul is making in the book of 2 Corinthians. Come out from among. He says this even to people that already are Christians. Because he's talking about the choices they make after they become a Christian. Come out from among them. You separate, says the Lord. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He isn't talking about the fact that they're not a Christian. He's talking about not just a state they're in. That's a continual point of action. They've got to continually separate themselves from the world by what they do. In John 17, I, I, we, our time is slipping away, but this is the beautiful prayer of Jesus of unity here in, in John chapter 17, which is at what we would call the Last Supper. Jesus makes his a speech to his disciples, which is the address of the head of the house in most Passovers. I have given them your word. It's called a table talk at the Passover feast. The head of the house makes a talk, and this is Jesus' talk on the last Passover that he had. I've given them your word. This is the apostles. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am out of the world. They're hated and they're going to continue to be hated. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So I don't know that God wants us to separate ourselves into a mountain in Utah somewhere to be Christians. But he does want us to keep from the evil one and separate ourselves. They are not of the world, 
Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them by your truth. The word sanctify means set apart. Pull, pull them over here apart. It's the word for saint, by the way. Same, same Greek word. It's the same Greek word that's translated holy. Sanctify or set them apart for your truth. Your word is true. And so forth. So don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's what the Old Testament says. That's what Paul says. And that's why Deuteronomy says in Deuteronomy 22, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. That's the idea. You can't put them there. That's a direct commandment in the Old Testament. So you have then this idea of these two completely mismatched animals. You know, interestingly enough, I don't know if somebody stayed. This is an old picture, obviously. I didn't set this up in my backyard or something. Uh, but but uh, it's obviously a, sta- a picture. I don't know if it's staged or not. It's possible that some poor farmer, like my grandfather, had, had he loved mules too. He just loved mules and plowed with lots of mules. Maybe some of your grandfathers did too. Uh, and he at times had an ox he was very proud of, stronger animal. But they both have good uses, but they don't belong on the same yoke together. There's a wisdom of the world. Worldly people are smart. They, they have a, a genius about them. They've given, made our lives easier in so many ways. Even Jesus praises sometimes the wisdom of the people of the world and the way that they do things. But he doesn't praise them for their service to God. And so we can't be linked up together like this and be servants of God. And so what is an unequal yoke? Well, an unequal yoke is any relationship that hinders, harms, or adversely affects my spiritual life and pulls me away from Christ. Should have quotes around all that, but that's the unequal yoke. And we get ourselves into these kind of relationships a lot, both individually and maybe in our own thinking. We're linked up with them. We just can't survive unless we're hooked into some worldly news service or some worldly movie service. We can't survive. And we just feed off the latest stuff from Hollywood and got to have that to be a happy person. There's an argument that can be made that you're unequally yoked there. These things taken in a certain context, certain dosages, probably aren't too bad. But the way many of us do it, it's a completely unequal yoke. You've linked yourself up with something that is intending to destroy you. That will only pull you away from Christ. Can't ever be good for you. Can't ever help you. You can do this in marriage. Yes, you can fall in love with your one and only who doesn't care anything at all about spiritual matters. They're just handsome or beautiful or make money or make you feel good, whatever it may be that serves your purpose. You can link yourself up with this person and you will not be able to grow in Christ. I'm not just talking about someone. You might find someone who is religious that can encourage you along the way. And I've seen some of these relationships that turn out differently. In fact, my parents' own marriage turned out differently, but it wasn't an unequal yoke in the complete sense of the word. One wasn't pulling one way and one pulling the other way. They were both pulling the same way. They just had not grown at the same rate. That's a different story. But some people don't even think about this. We've so bought into Hollywood's notion of marriage and, and the Harlequin romance notion of romance that or when we get the flutters for somebody, we immediately jump in bed with them and get hooked up with them, and they pull us away from Christ. I've seen it happen over and over again. So there is a warning here about marriage. 
But that can also go in business. Some people get hooked up in business with people who aren't Christians, and then they find themselves in trouble with the law. Because that person hasn't respected what the law says about how to do accounting. You know, and now they're hooked in with this person. Or they slowly drift away from Christ because that person's values, all their priorities on making money and on the business, and so their values slowly change, and the Christian is pulled away from loyalty to Christ and just becomes like Demas. He left Paul having loved this present world. There's the pull away. So it can happen to any of us. God demands that we think through these things, that we think about them. It's on our mind when we hear and read stuff and we get hooked up with people. Relationships. Is this making me a better Christian or a worse one? What am I doing here? Or am I beginning to justify things that years ago I would never have justified? One last scripture and we're closed. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, For you were once darkness, you Christians, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. That's how you have to figure that out. What's acceptable to God? And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. He doesn't say just have no fellowship and keep your mouth shut. He says expose them. That's another whole challenging sermon. Thank you so much for listening this morning. We're going to wrap it up. I know our time is gone, and and uh, we need, we're going to now close our service by encouraging you to obey the gospel of Christ. If you're not a Christian, come out from the world. Come out from among you. Be separate. If you want to follow the Lord, then follow him. It's going to demand a lot of you, but you can do that. God will give you help. You have brothers and sisters to help you. The Holy Spirit will help you. You can follow the Lord. And if you're already a Christian and have continued to do whatever you want to do and justify your sin, you need to correct that. Let these brothers and sisters here know that you want to get do better and get back on the right track. We'll pray for you this morning. So if you'll come down to the front right now, we can help you with these things to become a Christian, be baptized into Christ, have your sins washed away and start that new walk or get back on the right track. We're here to help. You come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.